when I was in primary school, we had an exchange teacher visit from Canada for a little while. And this Canadian teacher, I don't remember his name, but I remember his favourite phrase or sentence that he used to say. He used to say, Canada is so far away that it's not even today there. And my mum was in Canada earlier this year and it was her birthday and we all sent messages to her on what we thought was her birthday, but it was the wrong day uh, because we sent them a day early. It really isn't even today in Canada. It is that far away. Now, I know why that teacher um, kept using that phrase. He was trying to get our little minds to understand just how far away this otherworldly place called Canada was. Now, my impression as we read this passage today from John chapter 1 is that you had no difficulty imagining that these events happened in a very different time and place from our own. So much of what actually appears in this passage is really very quite foreign to us. Um, So much of it is foreign ground and John seems to write to a group of people assuming a certain base level of knowledge that frankly a lot of you and I just don't necessarily have on our own. And so there's this uh, threefold question that comes John's way. Are you Christ? No. Elijah? No. The prophet? No. Well, why are they asking these questions in particular? What is it about baptism uh, that seems to be so important in here? And where does baptism come from? Because it seems to appear as, as John's own idea. What about this phrase, Lamb of God? What's with the, you know, John's testimony about the Holy Spirit and descending like a dove? What does it all mean? I want to encourage you that, um, and, I, and I, I think I try to give this impression as I preach more often than not, that more often than not, as we open a page of Scripture, its meaning really is quite plain. And we can take it uh, at its face value and, and in its plainest sense. But there are passages like today uh, where we need to do a little bit of our groundwork to understand the background that John is speaking into. And so today, to help boil things down, we're focusing around the testimony of John the Baptist. So this is sort of our boundary for the passage today. Verse 19 begins, this is the testimony of God. Verse 34 ends with John himself saying, I have seen and have borne witness. And that same word, testimony, witness, it's the same Greek word. He talks in verse 32, I think, about his testimony as well. This is our our boundary. What is John's testimony? Here's what I'm going to say at boils down to, it boils down to John's greatness and Jesus's greatestness. Yes, I've made up another word. John's greatness and Jesus's greatestness. So first we're going to talk about John's greatness. Um, John the Baptist, so John who we're reading about in the book of John, isn't the John who's written the book. So we're reading the book of John, but when it introduces this man, John, first of all in verse 6, but then in these passages we're looking at today, this is John the Baptist. Um, The man who wrote the book, John, is John, uh, one of the disciples of Jesus. Uh, We have no reason to believe John the Baptist ever became uh, a disciple in that same sense of Jesus Christ. Um, In fact, we've got good reasons to believe he didn't. Um, But uh, So we're talking today about the greatness of John the Baptist. The Baptist. Now, John the Baptist really is a great figure uh, in Scripture. He's a great figure uh, in history. Uh, there's, a, there's a bunch of uh, testimonies, really, to the greatness of John. Uh, for example, in the testimonies about Jesus, the four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, every one of them mention John. In fact, three of the four mention John even before they mention Jesus. 
Um, and so John is always highlighted as the forerunner to the ministry of Christ. Um, John, uh, we understand from uh, the accounts of, uh, of the Gospels, drew a really large crowd. So at least in his own time and in his own location, uh, he was a man of significance. All the people from the countryside, it says several times, uh, were gathering to him. They were going out to him to be baptised to him. So he drew a crowd um, and, and he captured the imagination uh, of quite a number of people. And we see in here, as well as in other places, that John drew the attention of the religious elites from Jerusalem. They send um, a delegation uh, to him to uh, interrogate him uh, because, they, because they knew that he was influential enough that they needed to get to the bottom of what is going on out here in the wilderness with this man, John. Uh, we learn from other places, the other Gospels, uh, that John uh, drew the attention of the king, of the region, King Herod, uh, and John was arrested by the king and ultimately even put to death by the king for speaking out against the king. Uh, and so, uh, again, John was a man of great influence. Um, John isn't only mentioned in the Bible. Uh, John is also mentioned by the first century, first century historian Josephus, who you may have heard of. And Josephus, when he writes about uh, John the Baptist, uh, he actually says that, um, that a lot of the Jews uh, revered John so highly that when King Herod, who had killed John, when his armies were defeated, that was God's judgment on Herod for what he had done cruelly against John the Baptist. So it's quite plain that the Jews widely, uh, in the first and second century, revered John uh, as, a, as a great man and prophet of the Lord. Um, John the Baptist is still honoured as a prophet today, uh, not only in the Christian faith, but also in the Islamic and Baha'i faiths. Um, and so he's a man of great influence. Uh, and if I'm reading uh, correctly into the text of the book of John, uh, then it looks like John the Baptist was honoured highly by the general population of Jews and God-fearers around the time uh, that John the Evangelist uh, wrote this book. Um, he's very happy to speak highly of John. John is highly to speak ha- highly of John, uh, as, if, uh, as if to gain the trust uh, of his readers uh, and as if uh, to help them see that, yes, uh, we trust uh, the word of John and so let us read for ourselves what John's testimony about Jesus was. John, the evangelist, gives John the Baptist pride of place in his book. Uh, And he speaks so highly of him. Verses 6 and 7, which we skimmed past last week because we were talking about Christ as the Word. But verses 6 and 7 of John 1, how much more highly can you speak of a man? There was a man sent from God whose name was John. A man sent from God. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. So John, the evangelist, speaks very highly of John the Baptist. Uh, And we even find in the verses that we looked at today that John speaks highly of himself. Uh, In verse 23, uh, when the the delegation from the Pharisees or the uh, Jewish leaders come to him uh, and ask him, who are you? He says, I am a fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, He quotes uh, the words of the great prophet Isaiah, uh, 
In verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. You can find those words in Isaiah chapter 40. And we see more evidence in here that John the Baptist uh, is a great man because it seems that he has to work hard to convince people that he is not himself the Messiah or the Christ that they're expecting. So look at what he says in verses 19 and 20. When they come to him and say, who are you? Verse 20, just look at the pains that verse 20 makes takes to point out who, Jesus, who John is not. I'll try and say that again. Take notice of the pains taken by John to say who he is not. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. He's working very hard to convince people and to show them uh, with certainty that he is not the Christ, who many people, I assume, imagined him to be. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, and in another place in the book of Luke, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. This is the greatness of John. All these verses point to his greatness as a man, as a man of God, uh, and as a prophet and forerunner uh, for the one God would send in Jesus Christ. Now let's try and make sense a little bit of these questions. Why do the Jewish leaders come and ask him first if he's the Messiah? Failing that, is he Elijah? Failing that, is he the prophet? Where, where do these three figures, the Messiah or Christ, Elijah uh, and the prophet, come from? In the book of Deuteronomy, way back in the beginning of your Bible, the great prophet Moses, uh, when he's speaking some of his last words to the people of Israel, he says, the Lord will send another prophet like me. In the last days, uh, and so there is a promise from the very earliest days of the of the Jewish community that another prophet like Moses, Moses who delivered the people on mass from their uh, from their captors, another prophet like him was coming. I believe that this is the prophet uh, that the Jewish leaders are asking after uh, when they when they ask John if he is the prophet. Are you the prophet, the one like Moses who is to come? Well, the answer is no. At the very end of the Old Testament, in the last verses of the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, it says uh, in Malachi chapter 4, uh, 4 verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That's the only time that the Old Testament talks about this expectation that Elijah will return or a new Elijah uh, will appear. Um, and then you turn the page into the book of Matthew, and you meet John the Baptist in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord. And so, um, and all throughout Scripture, so we've got in the beginning this promise of a great prophet. At the end, we've got uh, this promise of Elijah who will return or a new Elijah who will come. And all throughout uh, the Old Testament, there is a promise of an anointed one or a Messiah or a Christ who will come. And so these are the three figures that people are looking for. And they're not just looking for these people because the Bible uh, talks about them. Uh, they're looking for these people because their circumstances call for them. These are a group of Jewish people who are living in their own land, but they're occupied uh, by the Roman forces. Uh, and they're really not happy about it. Uh, the Romans are, are mean, 
they're overpowering. And the Romans are gross because they're Gentiles and they do weird, yucky things that the Jewish people wouldn't even imagine doing for themselves. And so they're soiling their land. And so life is really uncomfortable for the Jewish people um, and they are really looking out for a saviour, someone who will, uh, in the spirit of Moses perhaps, drive out uh, their enemies uh, with great uh, acts of violence uh, and miracles, uh, or someone yeah, who, who will deliver their people in that sort of manner. So the Jewish leaders either thought that John the Baptist may have been one of these figures, or they had heard rumours circulating among the people to that effect, and they're investigating for themselves. And so that's a little bit of background to that threefold question, Messiah, Elijah, or prophet. Um, now, in this passage, we really need to talk a little bit about baptism because baptism from the second half on uh, is, is just all through it. So where did John get his idea to baptise? Uh, because if you read the Bible from the front, it seems, like John, it seems like it is John's idea. Like he's the first one to come up with it. And it can be hard to know where he got uh, this idea of baptism from. So as far as the Bible is concerned, the first direct reference to anything like baptism is the washing of implements for holy use in like the tabernacle or the temple. Uh, and also the washing of the priests before and after their holy service. And so baptism is about a ceremonial uh, washing uh, for holy use and, and service to God. Um, so that, that is probably our, closest, our first link to what became baptism later on. There's other stories in the Old Testament of, of a man who, uh, who was dunked uh, to be washed of his leprosy. Baptism is linked very closely, not only to water as a symbol, but actually the act of washing uh, and of cleansing to be pure. Um, other documents, so not in the Bible, but other documents from the Old Testament period indicate that the Jewish people had adopted this idea of, of washing not only for implements and for priests, but also for people uh, who converted to Judaism uh, from other faiths. Uh, and this was apparently a pretty well-known practice at the time. And so why do the Jewish leaders question John about his baptising ways? It's not because baptism is totally foreign to them, um, it's because John seems to be um, claiming some sort of special authority to do baptism his own way, in a unique way, uh, in, two key, in two key ways. He's changing baptism for himself. So the first way, baptism used to be done, as I understand my reading, baptism used to be done by the person themselves. They would wash themselves. But here was John before, performing baptism on others, washing others. And also, John was baptising Jews. So not non-Jewish converts, um, but he was baptising Jewish people. He was baptising Jewish people who believed themselves to be already pure because of their heritage uh, and links with Abraham, uh, already pure because of, other, because of their practices like offering temple sacrifices, already pure because of things like their eating laws that meant they didn't eat unclean things and only certain things. They believed themselves to be a pure race uh, already. But John was telling them that true cleanliness comes from the repentance of your sins. John washed the outside of the body to illustrate the washing that needed to take place, not on the outside, but from the inside out. 
So the reason the Jews questioned John about his baptizing ways isn't because of baptism itself, because they'd never heard of it before, or not even because it was necessarily linked in their expectations to the Christ or Elijah or the prophet, because that's almost what uh, verse 25 seems to indicate. They say, well, if you're not any of these three figures, why are you baptizing? It's not because they thought those three figures would come to baptize, it's because they're questioning John's authority to do something new. They recognize something about his greatness, uh, but they're questioning just how great he is uh, and what right he has. And here's where we move from John's greatness to Jesus's greatestness. Because John's view is that his baptism may appear radical, but really it's nothing. John is only a forerunner for Christ uh, and his work. And so John's symbol of washing is nothing compared to the very real washing uh, that Jesus will provide. He talks about in verse 33, uh, John's testimony is that Jesus will baptise not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. Jesus' greatestness uh, is highlighted by John uh, in a few verses. And so we're going to just step into each of these one at a time. Verse 27, John says uh, of Jesus, he says, oh, well, in verse 26, I baptise with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Pretty bold statement for a guy like John, who is universally recognised not only in the region, but also in scripture uh, and also by other faiths and all kinds of people as great, he doesn't see himself even worthy to be a servant of Jesus Christ. To untie the sandals might be a servant's job. John is not worthy to be even a servant. Now, we don't look at these words to keep God at a distance or to keep ourselves at a distance from God. Uh, but actually, when we look at these words, we're invited to remember even words like the song we sung in the kids' song today, that we are invited by God to be members of his family. We're not worthy to be his servants, but we are invited because of his grace uh, to be members of his own family. There's just a great picture. He um, whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. Verse 29, John's testimony about Jesus continues, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what he calls him. And what is he saying here? The thing is, this phrase, Lamb of God, is only mentioned in the whole Bible by John and only here in verse 29 and then a little bit later in verse 36 in this same chapter. It's the only time Lamb of God is mentioned in the whole Bible. What does he mean? Uh, he could be referring uh, to, this, to a sacrificial lamb. Uh, lambs and all sorts of creatures were offered uh, in sacrifice in the temple as a sacrifice in place uh, of people for their own sin. So a sin offering to the Lord. Um, that animal dies uh, so that they can go free. So that could be what he's talking about. He could be talking about the Passover lamb. So back in the time of Moses, uh, when, uh, when a lamb uh, was eaten uh, at the last feast that the, that the Jewish people shared uh, in Egypt when they were captives, uh, that Jesus is like um, that saving, delivering Passover lamb. Uh, it could be like uh, in the Old Testament, it talks about, um, it's not a sheep, but it's a goat. 
a scapegoat, a goat that in the tabernacle rituals, the the priests would lay their hands on a goat uh, representing the sins of the people placed on that goat and cast out into the wilderness. So it could be that, um, even though that's a bit awkward because it's a goat and John calls Jesus lamb, but it does have that picture of uh, taking away the sin of the world. The sin goes out and doesn't return. Um, But I think the key thing of this phrase isn't so much the Lamb of God picture, even though all of those uh, explanations might have some some clout. The key here is that this Lamb will take away the sin of the world. Their expectation, I believe, at this point, is that uh, taking away the sin of the world might have involved removing the filth from their land, that the Jewish hope of the removal of their sin was the removal of their problems, and their big problem was the Romans. That's what I think they're looking for. They're looking for someone who will come with a sword and remove the sin and filth from the land. But John the Baptist reveals through his baptising that the real sin problem isn't out there. It's not the bad guys. It's not the neighbours. It's not the school bullies or the people who do drugs. The real problem with sin is is the sin inside of you. John, our author, not John the Baptist, John, our author, reveals how Jesus is the final solution to the problem in here, the problem of sin. Jesus is slain like the sacrificial lamb. Uh, His body is food for hungry and dying people like the Passover lamb. And like the scapegoat, he takes away the sins of the world. You can see how any of those ideas of um, uh, links with a lamb of God uh, can be linked to the removal of the sin of the world. The removal of sin of the world is the offer. But it also becomes obvious throughout John's book uh, that although it's a genuine offer to the world, not everyone will receive it. Now again, that revelation isn't there for us to tut-tut about those out there who don't believe while we pat ourselves on the back for being in here believing. But that revelation is for us who are here to do our due diligence to make sure we do believe and receive that gracious cleansing of our sins uh, and so that we do consequently pledge our allegiance to following Christ, not just to be baptised, not just to be forgiven, but to live our whole lives uh, in service for him. Verse 32, John's witness continues, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. What is going on? God would send... Uh, his spirit throughout the Old Testament, God would spend, send his spirit down upon his servants from time to time. He would do it as an event, but it never lasted. And so even with Saul, remember the bad king or mostly bad king Saul that we looked at last term through the book of 1 Samuel, Num- a number of times throughout the book of Samuel, God sends his spirit on Saul. It rushes upon uh, or descends upon Saul and Saul acts with power And then we're left to assume that the Lord's Spirit leaves Saul from time to time because the Lord's Spirit needs to keep returning to Saul from time to time. And then, in fact, we are told quite plainly later on in the book that the Lord's Spirit leaves Saul altogether. Uh, But John gets word from on high that God is sending his Spirit again in a similar fashion, but this time it will remain and it's not going to go away. Why does it descend like a dove? There's a couple of thoughts about why it appeared like a dove to John. Um, it may be just that that's kind of how it looked. It's just John's you know, simile, his explanation for, you know, there was a white fluttery thing and it was beautiful and peaceful or something like that. Um, 
I suspect, actually, there's a link here to the book of Genesis when Noah sends out his dove from the ark and the dove goes out and flies back and forth across the earth and remains uh, on the earth. It doesn't return to the ark. And, and I think maybe this is uh, just meant to make, uh, our, uh, make our minds uh, return to God's graciousness in that time when he did uh, in a mighty way, um, uh, with the flood, wash away the sins of the world. But when the waters receded, uh, was a new sign of his covenant of grace and love uh, and, and the peace that he would bring to his people. And so the Lord's Spirit descends like a dove, uh, like a symbol of a promise, uh, and it remained uh, on Jesus. And finally, this is he, Jesus Christ, who baptises with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus didn't do baptism as John did it. There's, there's, we don't believe that Jesus went around washing people in water the same way John did. So what does John mean when he says Jesus baptises? Because we never saw him baptise. What did it mean for Jesus to baptise with the Holy Spirit? Well, it clearly wasn't a work of Jesus that was bound to his ministry on the earth because we didn't see it happen. Um, it is an ongoing work of Jesus. Jesus goes on washing people today. His baptism and cleansing through the cleansing through the Holy Spirit is something that He does today for all who believe in Him. Uh, and we are taught from Scripture that the Lord's Spirit uh, does live and work through all who trust in Jesus Christ. I just want to try and pull together a few threads uh, from this passage. We look at the greatness of God, but even uh, of John, but even better the greatestness of Jesus. One thing I think to take away from this passage, to take away from John the Baptist, remember who you aren't. John was very clear on who he wasn't. He was not the Messiah. In fact, there's a point uh, in, uh, in one of the other Gospels where Jesus says that John was Elijah, that John was the Elijah who was to come. Um, but John himself says, I'm not. Maybe he got it wrong. Maybe they were talking from different angles. Uh, but John is a humble guy. Remember who you aren't. Uh, live humbly. You are not God. You are not uh, the saviour of anyone. You are not holy on your own. Confess sins freely. Know who you are and know who you aren't. Secondly, hear the voice crying out in the wilderness. This is the voice crying out in the wilderness, the voice of John. Make straight the way of the Lord. How do you make the Lord's way into your heart straight and clear? It's similar to what I said before. Humble yourself. A contrite heart God will not despise. Humility and repentance beats temple sacrifice any day of the week, and it always did. Make straight the way of the Lord, humble your heart, uh, smooth the way for him to enter your, uh, enter your heart. And finally, uh, like John, testify with your life about who it is that Jesus is. Testify with your life the greatestness of Christ. Um, whether it be uh, by your words, whether it be uh, through your work, um, 
whether it be uh, even by being open and humble and honest with your own sin, testify that your hope is not in yourself, but it is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, A friend that Nat and I used to go to church with in Brisbane, uh, her brother died this week. He He'd been in a wheelchair all his life. He was somewhere in his 20s and he passed away this week. Um, And she posted his final words, uh, his his final Facebook post um, she shared uh, with the world last night. Um, And uh, and I'm going to read it out. It's the words I think from a song. I've never heard the song. Um, But here's what uh, Scotty said as his final words. And I think uh, this shows uh, a life that was lived to testify about Christ. This is what Scotty says. Uh, All the kingdoms built, all the trophies won, will crumble into dust when it's said and done. Because all that really mattered, did I love the truth, did I live the truth to the ones I love? Was my life the proof that there is only one whose name will last forever? And I don't want to leave a legacy... I don't care if they remember me, only Jesus. And I've only got one life to live. I'll let every second point to him, only Jesus. I don't know what you think. A man who has lived his whole life in a wheelchair, maybe you think it would be easy, easier for a wheelchair person uh, who's uh, not able uh, to live uh, a life of freedom like you and I can you know, to say those sorts of words or to uh, pay lip service to that kind of life. Um, Maybe you think that way, I'm not sure. Maybe you're more inclined to think that, gee, what an amazing witness that a man who suffered so greatly through all his life uh, was able to point uh, others throughout his life to Jesus Christ. Uh, And why don't we pray uh, that we live that same kind of life for ourselves? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the testimony of John uh, that's been preserved for us. Uh, We thank you for uh, the greatness of the man, uh, for the influence that he had, uh, for the evidence of a life uh, lived entirely uh, in your service. Uh, Father, we thank you um, that as great as John the Baptist was, we have in him an example of a man who... Uh, was eager to point uh, always, only uh, and entirely uh, to the greatestness of your son Jesus. Uh, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he came uh, to, to baptise, to wash us clean with the truly working power of your Holy Spirit, so much better than water. Father, we humble ourselves uh, before you, We ask uh, that your Holy Spirit uh, will enter us uh, and wash us clean and to keep us clean and to make his home inside of us uh, so that we can live as ongoing uh, witnesses to the great uh, glory of your Son, Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.